Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond Brexit Live, which is our rebranded beer and Brexit. Uh, as a result of it rebranding and as a result of COVID, there's going to be no beer. And in fact, there's going to be relatively little uh, Brexit. But I'm delighted for our inaugural guest to have uh, Lisa Nandy, MP for Wigan since 2010, described by Politico as the wild card candidate of the Labour leadership race. Uh, she was also, I have to say, if you think, if those of you who are regulars at Arbeer and Brexit and might remember David Lidington, I did ask him which Labour candidate he feared the most, and he said uh, Lisa. Lisa, of course, is now the Shadow Foreign Secretary. I should say, finally, before we get into it, we were scheduled to have Lisa at a beer and Brexit. I can't remember when it was, towards the end of last year. Uh, and there was a parliamentary vote that got in the way. But happily now, Parliament no longer gets to vote on anything. So Lisa's free in the evenings these days. And uh, I'm delighted to have you here. So Lisa, thanks ever so much. Um, um, thanks. We, we may actually be voting in a minute. So if you hear some bells ringing, uh, just to prove Anand wrong with his opening <laughs> remarks, uh, that's what it is. <laughs> Okay, well, thanks for that. Uh, if we can go back and start with that leadership campaign, just just thinking back, what what was your overall experience? Did you enjoy it? Did you learn anything from it? Um, I mean, anyone who's been through a Labour leadership contest will tell you not to ever do it again, whether you win or lose. I think um, it was relentless, um, and it was also it was uh, it felt like the longest contest in history. I mean, it feels like ancient history now because the entire it world was well it just you know it was sort of the experience of being a candidate is just going from hustings to hustings around the country from one conference center to another sort of staring vaguely out into an audience of people who get very little time to question you while you all shout slogans at each other in your allotted two minutes and by about halfway through I remember saying to Kieran and Becky should we do this one in the style of each other and draw lots because we kind of got so familiar with each other's. And I remember Keir saying to me, I've, I, I, he said, we win together. That's your slogan, isn't it? I've just said it. <laughs> um, but, but actually it was quite, in a way it was quite important for the party, I think, because, um, well, a couple of things. One is because I stood in that contest because I really felt that for a long time Labour had been growing apart from uh, working class voters in towns like mine. And I felt that those people needed to hear from us that we got it and that we understood it. Um, and also because I think there was a consensus that grew up amongst the candidates during that contest, because we were all exposed to the same people, the same concerns. And there was a camaraderie as well that was really important for the party. You know, by the end of it, I think only Keir, Becky and I understood how bad it was to be us. And we were each other's sort of biggest support group and people could see that and it mattered to people. And that set the party on a much stronger footing, I think, moving forwards. Right, okay then, be honest about this. Were you delighted when you were offered your Shadow Foreign Secretary brief or were you a bit hacked off that you couldn't pursue the domestic agenda that you'd spent so long in that campaign sort of laying out? surprised to be honest um, I've been through a few reshuffles over the last decade and sorry about the bell um, and um, in every reshuffle I've managed to try and foresee what is going to happen to me and in each one I've managed to either argue myself down a rung or out of a job entirely so I don't have a particularly good track record in trying to sort of foresee these things and, and work out what to do about it 
in this one, I'd, I'd kind of figured I'd be given some kind of role around the sort of red wall, hmm. you know, Labour winning back, lost voters. I wasn't sure whether it'd be a front of house sort of job or whether I'd be put in a cupboard for having the temerity to stand against the newly elected leader of the Labour Party. So it kind of took me aback, if I'm really honest. Um, firstly, because it was quite generous. I mean, really generous. It was a generous offer, not just to me, but to the, um, you know, large chunk of the party that had come out and supported me in the leadership contest. Mm. Secondly, because uh, I'm known better for the issues around post-industrial towns in Northern England than I am for, um, you know, foreign policy positioning. And I haven't, with the exception of the Middle East, uh, I haven't done huge amounts on that since I've been in Parliament. So, I, and, and also because I've got a, a young child in Wigan, young family, and I just sort of, you know, my initial response was how on earth am I going to be Shadow Foreign Secretary and go all around the world when I find it difficult enough commuting backwards and forwards to London and, and seeing the family. Um, so the, the first thing I said to Keir was, oh, what really? And the second thing I said was, thank you, that's a very generous offer. And the third thing I said was, I need to go and talk to the family about it. Went downstairs and my partner said to me, why are you here telling me this? Why aren't you upstairs on the phone to Kia saying, yes, thank you, I'd love to be the Shadow Foreign Secretary. So I, I accepted the job and actually very, very quickly started to realise that foreign policy was the sort of missing bit of the jigsaw for me. The things that are happening in Wigan are not that different to the trends that have um, are happening in the Rust Belt in the USA. You know, the sorts of things that drove the Brexit vote in the UK are similar to the trends that produced Donald Trump um, in the US. And right across the world, we're seeing similar sort of phenomena and started to realise actually that, you know, there's a lot that you can bring to this role having had a domestic focus in the past. Um, I'm kind of, I'm having to get used to the fact that there aren't uh, many women in this world. Uh, that was a bit of a surprise, but no, it's been it's been amazing. And actually, be really honest with you, I was asked by the Mirror last week. You know, do you ever sort of secretly think, oh, I wish that I was leader of the Labour Party? I really want to be the Foreign Secretary. I've got Dominic Raab in my sights, and that's <laughs> what I intend to do for the next four years: is make sure that that job is mine next. When 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 he appointed you, did you and Keir Starmer have a chat about foreign policy principles, or did he basically, this is your job, go away and make of it what you will? Well, you know, in leadership contests, you follow each other quite closely. Yeah. And um, he'd been watching some of the stuff that I'd been saying. I think I did more interventions around foreign policy than most mm -hmm. in the contest. He was, uh, we made it quite a feature because I felt quite strongly that that was one of the areas where Labour had got it most badly wrong in recent years. That's no criticism of my predecessor, Emily Thornbury, who's been absolutely wonderful to me since I took on this post. And actually helped to repair some of that damage but I you know in relation to Russia for example I felt that we'd really called it wrong when there were the poisonings in Salisbury and that there just was a sort of lingering sense about Labour that we weren't you know we weren't taking people's national security seriously that we weren't when when we were forced to choose between Britain and the world we were often on somebody else's side and not our own mm. um and so, I, you know, he'd, he'd followed all of that and seen some of the interventions that I'd done during the campaign. I think the, the sort of strange thing about that leadership contest is that Keir and I, particularly out of all the candidates, probably have quite similar politics um, and quite similar starting points. We just found ourselves on a very different side of the argument in relation to Brexit in the later years. And in a way, that's sort of our biggest strength is that we can pull the party and 
different parts of the electoral coalition together. Um, so it's been it's been ideal, really, from my point of view. It's been a really good, strong partnership. I'm not just saying this because um, if I say anything else, I might lose my job. He is genuinely, you know, when he said he wanted to build a strong team full of different views and you know different parts of the party, that that definitely, for the first time in in a decade in Parliament, I really feel that that has happened. I mean, I see the point in a sort of patriotic foreign policy, but you've also spoken about an ethical foreign policy. I mean, can you just tell me what that means? Well, I mean, I've spoken about it in a number of ways. I mean, one is that the world has, certainly in my lifetime, has rarely felt this uncertain. You know, I grew up in the Cold War era, but the, the complexities and the challenges of this era, I think, are far greater. China and the US, two global superpowers. Um, you know, you see what happened with Britain being squeezed between them during the Huawei 5G row um, mm. and the difficulties that that poses to the UK, especially outside of the EU, where we're finding our feet in the world and thinking through how we're going to exert influence in the world. And all of that, you know, all of that contributes to a sense that the world is spinning out of control. And in that sort of world, your values are your anchor. They're how you build alliances, you know, human rights, democracy, the rule of law, standing up for these things with a level of consistency is how you build those alliances and how you help to, to anchor yourself and stand up for your interests in that sort of uncertain, difficult environment where you have to have a relationship with the world's superpowers. There is no global problem that can be solved without the Chinese government or, or the United States for that matter, but where you need to be able to speak from a position of values and strategic independence. So I think I think that's the, the first thing. And the second thing I'd just quickly say about that is that I think Labour, you know, Labour, my colleague Bridget Phillipson said this really well, actually, in the last parliament. Labour is a party that can be very hindered by a sense of nostalgia for the past. And I think we haven't really had a foreign policy in the Labour Party, uh, just like Britain, for at least a decade. Um, since William Hague took office, I think, the, left office, I think the, the UK has largely seen foreign policy through the lens of growth and trade. And mm -hmm. I think Labour has had positions on issues, on countries, but not necessarily had a, an approach to the world. Um, that is consistent and clear. And we tend to sort of go back to the era of Bevan or uh, uh, Ernie Bevan or Robin Cook is another favorite that we, we sort of pull out of our greatest hits. But actually, and that, that, that emphasis on what he called foreign policy with an ethical dimension, it, it was right at the time and it's right now, but it's different now than it was in the early 90s. Some of those values that you have to place at the core of your approach don't just include human rights and democracy and the rule of law. They also include things like environmentalism and feminism, which I was discussing with Margot Wallström, um, Swedish uh, uh, politician who led the world's first feminist foreign policy. And so, you know, rather than being hampered by our past or trying to reheat our greatest hits from the past. I think we really do need to build a foreign policy that's fit for this century and the challenges that we'll be facing in 10, 20 years time. That's really, that's really interesting in, in loads of ways. I mean, one way is, you know, in a sense, what a lot of sort of political pundits are arguing is that Labour needs to reconnect with perhaps some of those more socially conservative voters that it lost in the last election. 
and yet you're you're spelling out a very sort of socially liberal international agenda. Does that jar at all? Does that get in? You know, being a liberal internationalist does that get in the way of winning back uh, voters who are perhaps more socially conservative? Does it? Is there a tension there, or are they two separate things? I think it depends what you're trying to achieve with your internationalism. I think there's been a problem on the left in recent years that we've conflated globalization with internationalism and actually the two things aren't the same we've mm. had a model of globalization that you know as david miliband once famously said the rising tide did not float all boats and um you know an acknowledgement that during the new labor years that was one of the things that was allowed to happen so you had towns like mine that were i hate this phrase left behind but were you know essentially shut out of the benefits of that mm. um uh, but you also had people uh, in developing countries, particularly who paid the highest price, you know, look at the inability to come together and tackle climate change, look at the way in which the trade system works so that it pits uh, one group of workers against another. The, a lot of the hostility between China and the USA at the moment and the ramping up of hostility is to do with a, a model of growth and trade, particularly a model of growth in China that has depressed living standards that has led to excess production, which is being absorbed by the United States, which has th therefore depressed living standards and put people out of work in the US as well. Mm -hmm. So when I talk about internationalism, I talk about an internationalism that actually starts to, to reconstruct the global system to put working class people here and across the world at front and center. Now, I think that has huge resonance in towns like Wigan. I know that I keep going on about Wigan, but obviously it's my home and it's where I live. My, but I'm, you know, I grew up in Bury, and the same is true there. You know, ma major major employers in many of those areas, the northeast, the northwest, the Midlands. These are big global companies with huge supply chains connected all over the world. In Wales, the steel industry. People understand that we we have to be globally connected, and they also have always seen very clearly that working class people here need to stand with working class people on the other side of the world. The example that I used when I spoke to conference last week was one that's very personal to me being half Indian, um, which was the um, time that Gandhi came over to, the, the, to Lancashire at the invitation of the textile workers who were working in the mills and whose livelihoods had been completely wiped out by the Indian cotton picker strike and the, um, the Indian independence movement and the boycott of goods. Um, from the UK and he came and he saw for himself what was happening there was a big pushback against that from some of the textile workers understandably who were losing their livelihoods but my step family were amongst those who came and met him off the plane to applaud him and to stand with those people in the Indian independence movement and those people on the other side of the world because they saw very clearly that this was a global system that was working against both my, my Indian family were involved in the independence movement on the other side. It just seems to me that there is a working class history in this country in many of those in industrial or post-industrial towns that totally understands the value of internationalism but does not accept the model that we've currently got because it doesn't deliver for them. But even if you had Dominic Raab's job, there wouldn't be much you could do for the Chinese working class, would there? You'd have to work with the Chinese government and presumably just deal with them as they are. I, mean, I think I think you need a, a realistic strategy, but you need what William Hague calls a twin pillar strategy, which is uh, constructive engagement with the Chinese government, and that you know that is where I think 
diplomacy comes to the fore and the UK has a great deal of soft power in relation to, to that. Mm -hmm. There are areas clearly where our interests align with China. Um, we, we're hosting COP26 in the early part of next year and China has recently made announcement on climate change that position it firmly as an ally in that area. Um, and, you know, important for the world there because, we've, you know, without the involvement and the engagement of the Chinese government, we have no hope of solving climate change. Um, but on, but the, 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 the other pillar of that and the one where I think the UK has been, uh, has paid far too little attention is about being able to have more strategic independence so we can speak from a position of values and exert influence. Now that's complicated in relation to China, it's deeply embedded across the world's economy, mm. um, but it's not impossible. And you know, one, one example of this uh, is the work that Dominic Raab did recently uh, with some of our uh, partners, uh, Five Eyes partners, um, in, in, uh, in response to what's happening in Hong Kong. Um, so trying to reach out and build those alliances across the world. We've gained a reputation as an alliance breaker in recent years, and we've got to start reaching out and building those friendships and those alliances in order to exert more uh, influence and to, to speak from a position of our values. Um, but the, you know there are, there are other examples as well of where we've managed to, to sufficiently do that. There are more examples, sadly, of where we've really got that wrong in recent years and that it's one of the reasons why I say that we're out of the EU that argument is settled but our relationship with Europe with the EU and bilaterally with EU allies will continue to be important. We'll come back to that I mean we're gonna to have to talk about Brexit briefly but I want to make it very very brief I mean just to put you on the spot I mean do you see China as a threat? Um, so I don't see China as a threat I think it's really important to distinguish between the Chinese government for starters and the Chinese people. Our relationship with the Chinese people is long-standing, it's deep and it's important. One of the things I've been really struck by as a member of the COVID committee that Labour has, we, where we, you know, we sort of mirror what's happening in government, a small group of us making decisions about COVID in real time, is that the, the level of cooperation between uh, medical and scientific researchers in China and the rest of the world, even with, you know, with the political pressure that has been brought to bear, not just by the Chinese government, especially in the early weeks of the outbreak, but also by the US government as well, that has withstood that pressure and has been incredibly important. So no, I don't see China as a threat, but I think the increasingly assertive behaviour of the Chinese government is something that the UK needs not just tactics for but a strategy for and that is missing at the moment so if you look at the foreign office increasingly you'll see um dominic raab trying to build alliances trying to um uh, stand up for our values in relation to hong kong in relation to the uyghur people but you look to the treasury and you see a very very different picture of a chancellor who is looking to china to finance a lot of our post-covid economic reconstruction it's a confused approach that will not serve as well unless we start to think much more strategically about it okay and i suppose the other massive issue in the short to medium term is the us and the us election i mean will your will your attitude towards or policies towards the us change depending on who wins uh, well, diplomatically, as somebody who hopes to be in government towards the tail end of a Biden administration, sorry, did, did I say that? I meant 
uh, an incoming administration. Um, I mean, it's no secret, is it, who I would be voting for if um, if I was a US citizen. But I guess the truth is that Britain needs to have a relationship with the United States, regardless of who is in office and who is in power. Um, I think that the Boris Johnson clearly has a very close relationship on a personal level with President Trump, but I think it's posed a great deal of problems the Trump administration, partly the divergence in values and views about um, about how we engage with the rest of the world. The US stepping out of that leadership role for the first time since the Second World War has opened up a vacuum for China in particular to, to exploit. Um, but also because I think Trump sees the world in a very different way to politicians. I think he's a businessman. And I, having met several members of that administration, it's it's becoming, you know, it's quite clear that they, that's how they approach politics. They do business and they do deals and they do them in the interests of the United States. Now, that that is always going to be a, quite limiting for Britain. Um, but there are challenges with the Biden administration too. And I don't want to equate the two things. I think things would, the world would become a much simpler place if, if Biden were to win the, the elections uh, this autumn. But there is a challenge too, because you know, in, in the democratic circles, I think there is a growing sense, particularly amongst the younger Democrats, that Britain has largely absented itself from, from a, a relevant position by leaving the, the EU. And in any case, I think, you know, even where they looked to the EU, they particularly looked to France and Germany for key relationships. But in any case, I think they see primarily the future as focusing on Asia and relationships with Asia. So that is a challenge for us. And it's something that, you know, we've, we've been reaching out to the Democrats in advance of those elections because it's clearly important for Britain and where we can play a role in making sure that there are those close ties um, between Britain and an incoming Biden administration, I think it's incumbent on us as a responsible opposition to do that. Do you think, do you think the way the government's handled COVID has damaged our international reputation? Um, yes, I do. So in the last few weeks, I, I've you know obviously been meeting with ambassadors and foreign ministers, um, progressive leaders from around the world. And I think, I think there's a level of bewilderment about what the UK is doing. Um, mm and real concern, particularly uh, across Europe. Um, but there is also a great deal of goodwill towards the UK as well, despite all of the strained relationships we've had in recent years. Um, I think there is a, you know, a great affection for, for Britain and the role that we've played on a world stage. And you know, very much with uh, the increasingly aggressive behavior by Russia, with the, uh, the, the collapse of, or near collapse of the Iran nuclear deal, um, mm. and um, with the, you know, the situation with China and the US, I think there is people are still looking to Britain in order to play a role in the world. I think they're hoping that this is just some kind of temporary blip and not signalling a, a change of course from the UK government. I think it's already done, done us a great deal of damage, but I think that damage can be repaired if the government so chooses. And do you buy this idea that uh, internationally female leaders have succeeded better in dealing with COVID? Um, yeah, to a large extent, I do, actually. Um, I think there's a different type of leadership that is coming to the fore around the world to sort of counter what we've seen in 
previous years of this kind of rise of strongman populist leaders. And I think those populist leaders have shown themselves particularly ill-suited to dealing with crises like these, you know, whether it's Brazil, uh, the US or here in the UK. I think we've seen real problems with that approach. The reason for that is because this is first and foremost a public health crisis. And in any public health crisis, um, explaining to people what has happened, being clear and being honest and being consistent, being unafraid to say that you don't know all the answers or change your mind when you've got it wrong, to share that information with people, um, to know that um, it's not cowardice to show a level of compromise in order to bring people with you and to, change, to, to solve this together. All of those things are traits that are not really present in that style of leadership. And we've seen much more of that from, from particularly from female leaders. It really interestingly to me as well, not necessarily female leaders on the left. So, you know, obviously people hold up Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, but also Angela Merkel in Germany. And, you know, we've seen it in Denmark. I met the South Korean um, foreign minister quite early on. Um, and so, yes, I do, actually. I think there's been a different sort of leadership that we've seen on display. And perhaps, just perhaps, that might, if we get this right, might mark a turning point in, in how we, you know, how we perceive leadership and what sort of leaders we choose. Oh, I've got to ask now then, Scotland? It's a lovely place. <laughs> all right i won't push you on that but uh all right we're going to do brexit we're going to do it very very quickly because we've probably all had enough of brexit for the moment but uh what did you make of the government coming to parliament to say that they were prepared to break international law what do you think that did to the uk's reputation um i mean i, I guess I, I think it's i think it's really difficult i mean i think if you look at i mean i I spend quite a lot of time looking at Dominic Raab now because we face each other across the dispatch box. I mean, only in a professional capacity, obviously. I didn't come out quite right. But um, the, if you, you know, if you watch what Dominic, how Dominic Raab has, has responded to that, I think there is real disquiet in government, you know, and, and amongst some of the people who would have been quite supportive of the, the current government, um, so not just people like Robert Buckland, but people like Rob as well, because in recent months, um, we've seen a, a slightly more interventionist approach from the Foreign Office, you know, the Magnitsky sanction legislation mm -hmm. coming forward and uh, sanctions applied even today um, in relation to Belarus, as well mm -hmm. as Saudi and Russia and other countries. And it's really difficult when in, in the last six months alone, the Foreign Secretary has lectured Russia, um, Iran, Israel, um, at Belarus and the administration there, a whole host of countries about their responsibilities, as well as China under international law, and yet is not willing to uphold that commitment ourselves. I, I worry more about the longer term implications, I suppose, because I, I can see that this government thinks it's a clever short term tactic. Um, but next year we host COP26. It's only a few months until we're going to be asking the world to come together and agree legally binding commitments upheld by international agreements mm. that in many cases will be extremely painful for their economies in the middle of a global pandemic. And it really does make me wonder how we're going to persuade other countries to commit 
to those really important obligations when we you know we're now seen as a country that doesn't uphold our obligations ourselves if you were negotiating, well it wouldn't be if it was Keir Starmer or Rachel Reed, if Labour were negotiating with the European Union what sort of relationship would, would they be negotiating would it be different from the one that's being negotiated at the moment um, I suppose in, in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So we've always said that the priority ought to be what Boris Johnson actually was promising, which was a, you know, a, a, a relationship that removed a lot of the friction. So the tariff-free, quota-free um, sort of vision that we've been pushing for quite some time. That would be a that would be a real priority for us. So in terms of you know, the, the ongoing issues that the government has got itself into about internal borders and masses of paperwork within the UK, uh, situation at Kent as well, and the, the, you know, the ongoing concern about a hard border on the island of Ireland. I think some of those things will be much more straightforward. Um, on state aid, um, I think the EU's opening sort of negotiating position probably was, uh, I think, I think two things. I mean, I think it was, it was something that we clearly wouldn't have agreed to as a as a Labour Party, um, but it was also an opening negotiating position. And I think it is becoming clear that it's a lot easier to get to a, a shared understanding of state aid with the EU that allows us to be as interventionist as countries like Germany who remain in the EU and have, have managed to do that. So I guess what you would see is less ideology, um, but in terms of going out and fighting for a good deal for Britain, that would, you know, that that would absolutely be up front and centre of what we were trying to do, because, you know, sometimes I think, that, you know, by the, the debate has become very polarised between people who want to fight for the EU and people who want to fight for Britain. I see it as very much in Britain's interest to have a deal with the EU, and I see it as in the EU's interest to have a deal with Britain. But in those negotiations, we would go out to make sure that we got that tariff-free, quota-free access, that we got rid of, you know, or put paid to any suggestion of a hard border on the island of Ireland in the process, um, that we could pursue an interventionist foreign policy. And also, I suppose, just in, in terms of the future relationship with the EU, um, that we, I think it is in our interest to have a relationship on things like an agree, some kind of agreement on foreign policy, security policy with the EU itself. But we would also be looking to strengthen and deepen our bilateral ties with EU partner countries. Dominic Raab recently hosted the E3. I thought that was really positive. There are areas where the UK would want to go further than the EU on, on things like sanctions recently, for example, we have. And that I think is to be welcomed. I think you can have a more ambitious relationship with those countries bilaterally by having some kind of formal relationship with the EU. It's been presented as an either or. I genuinely don't think that it is. Is it possible, do you think, to be close allies and intense economic competitors? Um, well, um, yes, in that um, we've managed to do that already. And that part of the, you know, the rationale behind the EU was about trying to ensure that we didn't have a race to the bottom. You know, these models of global cooperation that we set up were, you know, at various moments have with the social contracts and other things have meant to be about lifting people up, not driving others down. And it, it, there are definitely, you know, someone who wanted to remain and campaigned to remain, but it, it accepted 
some of the arguments put forward by Leave campaigners and by my Leave voting constituents. I don't think we have we have managed to do that. And I think, you know, a global system that works in the interests of working people would look different to the model that we currently have within the EU. In fact, in recent in recent years, people like Macron have been making that argument as well. Tony Blair actually, dare I say it, made this argument not long before he left office as prime minister. Um, that the EU needed to reform, that there were changes that had to be made in order to support people here and across the European Union. You know, just after the referendum, I went to um, I went to Germany to meet some of the SPD politicians in Berlin to discuss, you know, to hear their concerns and to sort of put forward a view from Britain about what happened next. And um, at the time, a number of them were, you know, sort of felt that Britain was a special case that you know, we'd always been slightly apart from the EU and perhaps, um, you know, perhaps this was just a natural consequence of that. But actually then I went to Cottbus, which is an hour outside of Berlin, which is very similar to Wigan in many ways, post-industrial town, when the jobs went, government put subsidies in to attract private companies, big major employer, when the subsidies went, the employer left. So it's got an aging population and it's got a lot of young people who, feeling very frustrated even angry about the settlement that they've got and um you know saw a very very similar picture in germany as as i've seen since in many european countries so in in or out of the eu i think there was always going to have to be a shift and I, i would have rather that britain had stayed within the eu but that argument is now over and perhaps for the eu and for britain this is a moment to recognize that that system wasn't working for a lot of people and we've got to change it do you think your leave voting constituents would be happy to see a very close sort of foreign policy relationship with the eu going forward or are they keen to be more distant you think insofar as they talk about foreign policy i mean i don't think that foreign policy was ever the 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 sort the, the issue really and there, there is undoubtedly some more autonomy outside of the EU, although I have to say I think that is hugely overstated by this government. It, just last week in the chamber, Dominic Raab was making a statement on Belarus and said that the UK could only apply sanctions because we were now outside of the EU. In fact, given that the, the progress on those talks has stalled within the EU, I think that's a complete misreading of the situation. But it is definitely true that you know there, there is some more autonomy which I think my constituents like they want they want it was always the political relationship that was the very difficult thing um, for for a lot of people to accept and making decisions to move in step with the EU feels very different I think to many of them than having to move in step with the EU whether we like it or not. I don't think foreign policy and security was ever the thing that that concerned people. And in fact, I would venture to say, not that I spend all my time in the pub discussing the finer points of um, whether we get a security agreement with the EU with my constituents, but I would venture to say that actually cooperating on security would probably be one of the most popular areas, um, you know, with the EU and also with the US and continuing to do that, whoever is in office. Sticking with your constituents and with people like, them sort of around the country was do you think their view of Labour was tainted by how Jeremy Corbyn handled the Skripal poisoning? Yeah I think there are a few things that happened during that time that really 
sent sort of almost you could feel a sense of shock when they happened. Um, so there was um, there were repeated incidents about anti-Semitism, and that came up uh, over and over again on the doorstep in December. People really felt. One guy said to me, "I didn't fight the war only for you to be you you know you as in labour to be able to do this." People felt very very strongly about it, and I I don't have a very big Jewish population in Wigan. I do have Jewish constituents, but it's relatively small compared to other parts of the country. But I do have a lot of armed forces and veterans and people who either served in the war or the parents served in the war. Um, so very big feeling about that. There was also a real sense that we were careless with people's money and um, that, you know, obviously that was a long-standing concern and some of these things have slightly deeper roots, but th there was there was very much a sense of that and the 2019 manifesto really did underscore that for people. Mm. Um, as one woman said to me, it's our money, love, and we don't have a lot of it. <laughs> And the, I guess the last thing was was Skripal. I felt that 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 um, incident in Salisbury and the initial response to that. And big credit to Nia Griffith and Emily Thornbury for very quickly going out and correcting Labour's position on that. But the damage was done. I think what it said to people was just that we were on somebody else's side other than theirs. And that there's been a growing sense really in towns like mine. That, that Labour is on somebody else's side, not theirs, when it counts. So although it was in relation to foreign policy, I think it just spoke to a much deeper sentiment. It's why in the leadership contest, I said I would move Labour HQ to Warrington, not, not just because my commute would be a lot better, but also because I just really wanted, I mean, I meant it, but I just really wanted people to know that we were, we were coming back to them, we were coming home to them, that we weren't expecting them to come to us and that we weren't people who live in another place, who live different lives, who have different values and priorities. We have their priorities and we're gonna come and be where they are uh, and understand that. Doesn't mean in any sense that Labour doesn't lead. You know, there are areas where you've got to get ahead of public opinion. I know that only too well from my family history. My dad was involved with the Race Relations Act. You know, Roy Jenkins was incredibly brave at getting ahead of public opinion on that mm -hmm. because it was the right thing to do. It's why I was so outspoken about trans rights when I was asked about it in the campaign because I genuinely believe we'll look back in history and feel ashamed of how we treated one of the most marginalized groups of people at this moment in our history but I really do feel quite optimistic about Labour now because I feel although we've got a huge job of work to do you know Keir set up this thing called Call Kia and of course it's all Zoom at the moment but his first event was in Bury. there you sort of town hall type meetings he's getting out to where people are you know he's talking to the local media he's listening to what people have to say that is a mark of a party that has got a level of humility about what's happened and is determined to change and you think that people are willing to listen to the message on patriotism it's one of the most striking things about labor under keir starmer is the use of the word patriotism and you think people are willing to sort of listen and give you a fair hearing on that now um, so you don't think the, the, the brand has been tarnished uh in a sort of unrecoverable way by what happened over the under Corbyn? I guess the honest answer is I don't really know. Uh, COVID is, is really strange. You know, I don't see people in the same way that I did. Yeah. So for the last few months, I haven't, you know, I, obviously I go out of my house, but, you know, I haven't been sitting in the pub where people come up and just chat to me 
you know, I haven't spent loads of time in sort of public places. So mm. I've had the odd conversation with people in the supermarket and stuff like that. But they are they those sorts of informal conversations tend to be how you get a much better sense of what people are thinking and feeling than in your surgery appointments where, you know, people come to you and they've made an appointment about a specific issue. So I guess I guess it's too soon to tell. I do feel like people are giving Labour a second look and I, I think the British public are very good at sussing out when something isn't genuine as well. And this, you know, from Labour, this is genuine. I mean, you could see it with Keir's conference speech. You can see it when I talk about it, I hope, um, that this really matters to us. It feels very deep. You know, when Dan Jarvis was talking about the Overseas Operations Bill the other day, it, you know, it really matters to him how Britain is seen in the world as a former soldier. And it really matters to him that he's standing up and protecting our troops he made a really sort of heartfelt plea to the government to think again about a piece of legislation that might well see our serving soldiers dragged to the hague um for for crimes uh you know to be prosecuted for for crimes including torture he you know you could see how much he feels it so i don't know the jury is out we've got a lot of work to do but i do feel like people are willing to give us a second look but Labour is making progress in the polls at the moment uh, and has been since since April. Do you do you have a sense as to why? I mean, do you have, have you had enough conversations? Have you had talks amongst the leadership? Do you know what is working? Um, well, I, I mean, there's two things about being in opposition, isn't there? One is what you do and the other is what the government yeah. does. And, you know, I think people are pretty fair. I think they, they looked at the, the situation that the government found itself in earlier in the year and thought this is really difficult and anybody in government would find it difficult to deal with so they were very willing to give the government the benefit of the doubt but I think as time has gone on and as the absence of a strategy has become clear and the you know the shambles of communication the arrogance with which some of this has been conducted by some individuals I wouldn't include Matt Hancock in that but you know some individuals within government I think people are getting increasingly frustrated so I think there's there's that um, you know, there's just a sense that Boris Johnson has gone missing in the middle of a national crisis. And of course, you know, when he was when he was ill, people completely understood that. But there is a real sort of feeling of drift in the north of England in particular, which is, you know, obviously where I spend most of my time. I think people just feel quite abandoned that, you know, the government is saying we're not in lockdown, but we are in lockdown. 13 million people are in lockdown. It's having real implications for our lives. These announcements about lockdown that are made at nine o'clock at night on Twitter. Um, with regulations that haven't even been written yet that come into force three hours later that tell you that your grandparents can't come round and look after your kids while you go to work the following morning. There's just a lack of care and attention to the realities of people's lives. And the fact that we came out of lockdown at a moment that was pretty catastrophic for the North the first time, I think people are really frustrated about that. So th there's that as well as the fact that I think you know, Keir's been pretty blunt. We've all we've all been fairly honest that Labour, you know, I, I did it in the leader, leadership contest. We got it wrong and we've acknowledged that we got it wrong on a whole host of issues. So um, I think people are starting to look at us again. I think that that's, you know, the two things have come together. It, it matters. And we'll continue to, we've had a bit of flack for being sort of, you know, what Keir calls a constructive opposition, but actually, it's in our interest for the government to succeed because we want the country to succeed. And I, I do actually think that's been really important for Labour, that people can mm. see that we're not going to attack them or make political capital out of this. It just really matters to us that the government gets this right.
But are, are you relatively confident then that this apparently increasing support is, is sort of evenly spread? That's to say, you're not just piling up more and more votes in sort of metropolitan London, but people in those red wall seats are starting to listen as well. I mean, are you, are you confident that that's happening in those seats as well? So um, my friend Gloria De Piero, who was the MP for Ashfield, mm -hmm. now does a show on Times Radio yeah. uh, called G&T um, on Sundays, if anyone wants to listen, it's brilliant. Um, she, she, they, they went back to Ashfield for the programme and did a Vox Pop. And there was definitely a sense that people were starting to look at Labour again. People, some people were coming back very quickly. I mean, that's amazing. I wouldn't be at all complacent about it, but, you know, it's really heartening um, because there was always a sense in those places. I went to Ashfield just after the election to ask people what they, you know, what they thought we needed to do. And there was always a sense that they hadn't left Labour, that Labour had left them. And so, I, you know, I think there is a real prospect of hope there. Um, and I think the Tories particularly don't really seem to understand the seats that they've just won the right to represent. Um, the first thing that Boris Johnson did when he became Prime Minister was to shoehorn into the withdrawal bill um, measures that attacked child refugees. People in those towns, Ashfield, Wigan, Lee, they don't like nastiness. You know, they're thoroughly decent and they want Britain to be a decent place. And while, you know, they'll happily voice concerns about immigration, if it's having a knock-on impact on them and their children's life chances, you know, what they won't put up with is nastiness. And so when, you know, the Tories try and ignite a culture war about LGBT rights, you know, trans issues, mm -hmm. and when they try and start a culture war about statues and the Black Lives Matters protests, actually, it doesn't really work in places like Wigan. You know, the last two statues that we put up in our town, uh, erected with public money and by public consent, were to a man, woman and child who'd worked in the pits, because uh, we didn't have a single uh, monument to our mining past mm -hmm. previously, and to Billy Boston, who you will know as a good rugby league man, mm -hmm. um, as being one of the best, in fact, the best rugby league player this country has ever produced, uh, and a hero in Wigan um, and much of the country, uh, and also the first black player, I think the first black player to play, play for England. So, yeah, you know, hugely unusual at that time anyway. Yeah. And he's ours, he's, he's one of ours, you know, in a town that isn't hugely diverse. There was no question that we had to have a statue to Billy Boston. So the idea that we wouldn't understand that statues matter to people, that who you celebrate and who you promote in your public spaces matters. I think it's just a huge underestimation of the people of of the red who live in those red so-called red wall areas. Now, I mean, you're very, very associated with the town's agenda and you're sort of you run that organization called the Center for Towns. Labour, however, is a party whose power bases are in cities. And are you are you sort of worried that Labour becomes a party for the cities and as a result doesn't really have a decent offer for towns? Um, I was worried about that. That's one of the key reasons that I stood in the Labour leadership contest and has driven a lot of the work that I've done over recent years. Um, I mean, I think there's a, been a sense, really, that political parties didn't speak for towns full stop. You know, if you looked across the political landscape before the before the general election, with the exception of, you know, some backbenchers, myself um, and Yvette Cooper, um, Dan Jarvis, um, in, included and you know on a 
on the Tory side as well, people like um, Ben Bradley, uh, Robert Halfen, you know, voicing some of these things. But I think there has been a real sense that nobody is speaking for those areas. And that's where we've seen a political vacuum arise. And that's why we've seen things like a very sudden and dramatic rise in support for UKIP in the mid 2000s in towns that had consistently rejected the BNP and chased the far right out of town over and over again. It just took us a long time to understand what that was about and what why we needed to respond to it. But I think that has changed. I think that's really changed. So if you listen to Annalisa Dodds now, who's our shadow chancellor, you will hear the economic recovery for the whole country up front and centre in our message. That was part of Keir's speech, you know, in a very short amount of time that he was allotted to, to speak to the country. That's what he chose to talk about. So, yeah, I think you'll see a very different different approach now from Labour. Do you think Labour has a values problem with those seats that it lost? I mean, there's a lot of talk about the fact that Brexit has triggered this sort of values division in our society. And Labour was so sort of, I mean, particularly under the old regime, but it's still, I think, perceived as being very socially liberal. Whereas in those seats in particular, uh, a lot of the voters that deserted the party are more socially conservative. Is that something the party, is that a problem for the party? And is it something that can be addressed? And I think what, what was a problem for us is that we, we took all the wrong cues from the political earthquakes that happened in those areas over recent decades. So, you know, there was a sort of sense in which a lot of people on the political spectrum dismissed that rise in support for UKIP as a, mm -hmm. um, as a, as a somehow xenophobic or racist vote. And similarly with the Brexit uh, vote, the vote to leave in many of those areas, there was a feeling that that was you know, about areas that dislike immigration, that, um, that that want to turn their back on the world. And before any of those things as well, we had this uh, falling turnout in many of those areas that we thought was apathy because, you know, to borrow a phrase from George Eliot, we couldn't hear the roar that lay on the other side of silence. There was an anger there, not an apathy. And I remember the first time I realised it was when, a guy came out of his house on, it was a local election day years ago, I mean, a newly elected MP, must have been nearly a decade ago, and said, I'm voting, I can't remember who it was at the time, it wasn't UKIP, it was some variant, it was, in Wigan it's the same people who stand for all these parties, whatever they become, Brexit party, UKIP, whatever, a lot of them were, were BMP and have been EDL at various points, and um, he came out of his house and he, I think he said I'm voting BMP and stormed off to the ballot box. It, it could have, it could have been something else, but he, you know, I remember thinking he hadn't, he, I mean, he genuinely did go down to the polling center. I don't know who he cast his vote for in the end, but I remember thinking he hadn't voted according to our records for elections, you know, several general elections. And I thought this is, you know, I was the only cheerful person on the doorstep at that point, you know, my fellow canvassers saying, why are you smiling? And I said, because it's, it's not apathy, it's anger. And, you know, our job is to, to take that. That's that's somebody who cares. Our job is to make sure that that gets channeled in the right direction. And actually, I just think we took the wrong cues from it. You know, I've talked about this in relation to free movement. I'm not saying that nobody in, in Wigan has a concern about immigration, but, you know, when I heard, when I really stopped to listen to what people were saying about free movement, it was very much a story that I also heard in Germany, that I heard in Austria, um, that I've heard in parts of France as well, that Macron addressed um, when they had the yellow vests uprising. 
about people who just felt ignored for a really long time and they'd spoken and no one was listening. They didn't object to people coming from across the EU to work in our hospitals and our care homes, but they really did object to the fact that their kids couldn't get decent well-paid jobs in the hospital as well. And they wanted to know who was gonna change that and nobody, nobody was speaking to that agenda. That, that's why I stood in the Labour leadership contest in order to try and make sure that we got that right. And I really feel, you know, although obviously I didn't win that contest, I really feel that the party came out a winner from that, that we're in a better place because of it. You know, huge credit to Kia. He heard it too, you know, and he's, he, he made, he's made it his mission to get out and about to those areas and to hear what people have got to say and to respond to it. Now, we were chatting before about sort of changing work patterns in the pandemic and because of lockdown and whatever. And do you think sort of in, in a curious way, there are the seeds of hope for towns in the way that working patterns are shifting because of COVID? That's to say the sort of massive economic shift towards cities. Do you see that that might be halted or even reversed a bit in a sort of post-pandemic new normal? Well, it's, it's difficult this because I don't think anyone knows you know quite where this will end up and a lot will depend on what the government does um so you know in the recent announcement from rishi sunak about the new wage subsidy scheme there was very very little in terms of kind of retraining new job creation you know how we how we make sure that workers in industries that aren't going to go back to normal anytime soon mm -hmm. can transition to, to new jobs that will be created at some stage. I mean, I appreciate it's difficult now, but you know, the green economy is, is growing faster than other areas of the economy. There, there, there ought to be jobs in those areas and in those industries and Britain ought to be a beneficiary of it, but without a proper strategy, we're not gonna see that. So my worry is that what ends up happening is that a lot of people lose their jobs and in areas which already lacked resilience, particularly in towns where you have maybe one major employer, that the combined impact of COVID and Brexit could, could um, be catastrophic. And particularly when you listen to what Sunak was saying last week about some whole industries being unviable. Mm -hmm. I, I'm really concerned about what that means for entire communities. You know, essentially, if you say that the tourism industry is unviable, which is pretty much what he seemed to be saying last week, then you're saying that seaside towns have the 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 are going to have the you know the the basis pulled out of their economy, and absolutely nothing from him to replace it. So. It's not, you know, it's not inevitable that this gets worse, but unless the government changes course, I think we've got a real problem. When he says that jobs are unviable in certain industries, he's not just writing off those industries and the people in them, he's also writing off entire communities. And I've seen in Wigan what that means. We're still living with the consequences of the decision under the Thatcher government to allow that to happen in the 1980s. So that's the bad news. The good news is, that I think people have really reappraised their values during this pandemic. We've sort of, I feel I've done it too. We've remembered some of the things that really matter and about time with families and about, you know, looking after the people who look after us. And, you know, whether that's in the public sector or the private sector, you know, I mean, I don't know anyone who isn't grateful to their Amazon delivery driver, even if they're pretty angry at the way that Jeff Bezos treats his employees. And the, so, you know, there's a, there's definitely a moment where we've started to think again about things. And one of those things is about wanting to spend more time with your family, working from home, you know, cutting out the long commute. 
And for many people in towns, that's something that really does matter because the jobs have been, the white collar jobs have been created in cities for decades. Most people in towns have to commute long distances to work. Mm. And a change in that will mean a shift so that, you know, the sandwich shop that currently exists in Manchester may have to open up in Wigan. Um, I think I was saying to you earlier, we might even get ciabattas in Wigan um, uh, to go with the balm cakes. But, it, you know, that that, pre that presents challenges for city centres, um, but it also poses opportunities for towns. And somehow or other, as an aspiring government, you know, as, as the people I hope will be in government sometime in the next few years, we've got to we've got to come up with an economic plan that works for both and that's what Annalisa was setting out in her conference speech and the response to Sunak that you know rather than wasting money on things like the the the, the jobs bonus that isn't going to help rather than trying to come up with a wage incentive scheme that doesn't incentivize most employers to keep people on spend the money on targeted support to extend the furlough scheme like they've done in Germany and make sure that people do then have the space to transition because once you know once you hit the sort of crisis of unemployment it's very very difficult to retrain and to to find new work so you know prevent that cliff edge and then help mm -hmm. people to move forwards so that's 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 the you know that, that is the economic plan in the end that I think this country needs Cheer batters for Wigan. You can stick that on the side of a bus and campaign on that. Anyway, I think I'm very aware of the fact we're not to run over. So now we're going to get to the real treat of the evening, which is our quick fire round, which I can tell you're excited about. We're going to redo this for a sort of post-Brexit world. But anyway, let's see. Beer or Burgundy? Beer. Beatles or the Stones? Just out of interest, are you offering now or... No, no, just in general, the general yeah. preference. I mean, had we done this in person, we would have offered you beer and burgundy, but for now it's just virtual and imaginary. What was your next one? Beatles or the Stones? Oh, it's not it's not really my thing, to be honest. I'm more of a Britney or um, Taylor. If you'd asked me Britney or Taylor Swift, I would have found that genuinely a bit hard, but Britney, probably. I'm loyal. Britney isn't an answer to Beatles or Stones, is it? So you can I just, ask think, I just think you got your questions wrong, Anand. Okay, fantastic. Phone a friend on that. Cheddar or camembert? Cheddar. It's a bit. Oh, um, it's a bit much camembert. Like you, you know. Have to your answers. It's fine. Just one word is fine. You don't have to. I, mean, you know. I just. I think these are quite important questions. I mean, halloumi or cheddar? Tricky. Oh, but cheddar know. or camembert? Cheddar. Okay. You know this is the quick fire round. Oasis or blur? Don't Oasis. Do it Sorry. Oasis. Cool. Beef bourguignon, steak or ale pie? I'm veggie, actually. Oh, God. I'll tell you what. All right. And I have to ask you this. I'm embarrassed to ask you this, but I've been told to ask you this. Will Jackie Smith win Strictly? Uh, if there's any justice in the world. All right. And your final one, which is a no-brainer. UK in a changing Europe or any other think tank? Any other think tank. Specifically, Centre for Towns, um, which you can find at centreforTowns.org, I think. Oh, my Lord. Um, doing so you know, wrong. Please read our reports and no, of course, if it wasn't Centre for Towns, of course, it would be UK and a changing Europe. My favourite think tank, think tank of choice for any uh, discerning politician. Well rescued. Well, listen, Lisa, first and foremost, thanks ever so much for taking the time. We have got a, a unique beer and Brexit tankard to give you, which I will do if we ever see each other in person again. But for the moment, thanks ever so much. And I have to say one final thing before we start, which is could people watching please fill in 
the survey. But Lisa, cheers for taking some time in your evenings. I thought that was really, really interesting and uh, take care of yourself. Thanks a lot. All See the best, bye-bye.